Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to the weekly deep dive episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays two times a week. I host these sessions live on Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments, and at your convenience, you can now listen here. But first, this week's episode is brought to you by the Family Finance Mom Economic Workshop Series. So many of you have asked for more formal education on specific topics, and now you have it. The Economic Workshops are a series of six hour-long sessions each on a specific economic topic to grow and deepen your financial and economic literacy and give you the confidence to make solid financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your future. If you've ever wondered, is this a good time to buy a house, change jobs, save more, invest more, start a new business? Should I be taking a big risk right now or maybe I need to be more cautious? Understanding how the economy works as well as the state of the current economic environment as a whole, can help you form more informed decisions on all of the above. The Economic Workshop Series will arm you with all the economic know-how you need to do exactly that. The first workshop, What is a Recession?, covered the economic cycle and how recessions are a natural part, and fortunately the shortest part, of the cycle. We talked about leading and lagging economic indicators, past recessions, and more. The full replay is available now. The second workshop, What is Economics? Scarcity, the Free Market, Supply and Demand, will be live February 23rd and is open for enrollment now. You can participate in the live workshop or catch the replay at your convenience. Each workshop includes 45 minutes of instruction followed by your questions. Choose the topics you want to learn more about or save money and get all six sessions with the Economic Workshop Bundle, including immediate access to January's workshop replay on recessions. Visit FamilyFinanceMom.com or the link in today's show notes for details. Hey, Family Finance Moms, happy Super Bowl Monday, which I feel like is like the Mondayest Monday of the year. Um, lots of new followers um, over the last 24 hours. So for those who are new, welcome. Uh, my name is Megan, also known as the Family Finance Mom. And twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays, I hop on for about half an hour here on Instagram to take your as many of your personal finance, economic, market news questions as I can in 30 minutes. Um, I start with the questions that people submitted in the box last night. You'll always find the box in my stories the night before. Um, and if you're here listening live, you're always welcome to comment and ask questions as we go along. So let me go ahead and get started with the questions from yesterday. Um, first question, a company you can recommend for a Roth IRA to fund it, how much money per year per person in 2023? So Roth IRA, you can open at almost any major broker. Um, I would say probably two of the most um, reputable, popular, largest are Fidelity and Vanguard. Um, They're most attractive to many people because they offer the most options in terms of passive index fund investing, 
which is gonna give you the lowest fee options out there. Um, Vanguard has kind of led the industry and they're the ones who first brought index funds to market as an option for, you know, available for investing. Um, and because of their mutual structure, the way that they're, they're set up and operate, um, as they've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, they pass on those cost savings to their investors in the form of lower fees. And that has brought down fees you know, across the industry as a whole. Um, some people tend to prefer Fidelity's kind of customer service interface, like their online um, dashboard and things like that better. Uh, and you can still actually access funds from any major manager you know, within many of those. But there are certain funds that they limit access only to people who invest on their platform. But those are two that like you can't go wrong with um, if you set yourself up on those platforms. In terms of the amount that you're capped at per year, for 2023, the limit is $6,500 per person. Um, and know that IRAs are individual. So you have, it, it stands for an individual retirement account. So both you and your spouse or significant other should have their own. You can both contribute up to $6,500 a year. You need to understand that with a Roth IRA, there are every year is an income limitation. So if you exceed a certain amount of income, um, it limits your ability to contribute to a Roth IRA directly. Um, so make sure you just check out the IRS website to make sure that you know you have eligibility. Um, and then that's kind of all you need to know. So I hope that that helps. Let me go ahead and take the next question. Uh, $36,000 on a HELOC with variable rates that now suck. Should I switch to a fixed home equity loan or what are other options? So for those who aren't um, familiar, a HELOC stands for Home Equity Line of Credit. Um, it's a way where you can go to your bank if you have um, an existing mortgage and you have built equity in your home and you can open up what is known as a line of credit, which is to say, okay, they've appraised your home, they would say you've built up this amount of equity and you can borrow against that at any point in time. It's kind of like an open credit line. You don't necessarily take out that sum up front, um, but you can draw on it as needed. So when might people do something like that? Well, maybe you are looking at putting in a new pool in your backyard, or maybe you're looking at a remodeling project for your house, um, and you don't necessarily wanna take out all the money at once, but you wanna have access to it to withdraw kind of over time. That's when someone might look at something like a HELOC. The thing to know is that with a line of credit like that, they are typically variable rate, which means that as interest rates have gone up over the last year, the interest rate on your HELOC is gonna go up as well. Um, and that is kind of when you look and say, okay, you know what? I would have been much better off taking out a fixed home equity loan, call it a year ago, and locking in those kind of record low mortgage rates and interest rates that were available back then. So if you're looking for kind of a fixed rate option now, I think a home equity um, loan is probably definitely the way to go, especially if you're currently have like a HELOC in place. Um, and the reason being for that is that borrowing against your home, borrowing against an asset that has kind of a set, um, a set value is always going to give you a lower cost of borrowing than if you just take out an unsecured line of credit. And the reason for that is that the, the home equity loan is secured against the value of your house, um, which gives the bank extra security. So they're able to, it, it makes it less risky for them and they pass that on to you in the form of a lower interest rate. 
So typically that's gonna be the lowest cost of borrowing that you're gonna be able to have access to. So um, I hope that that helps and I hope that that gives you some insight there. Um, other options, I mean, you can take out a personal loan, but again, like your the value there, the rate that you're gonna pay, there's a high degree of likelihood it's not gonna be lower than um, what you could get with a home equity loan. So I hope that that helps. And just kind of like for everybody listening, anybody who has variable rate credit right now, you're going to see those interest rates rising. The Fed is expected to continue to increase interest rates throughout 2023. So those interest rates are just gonna continue to get higher. Um, one of the data points on credit cards right now is that credit card interest rates are at their highest point recorded in more than like 30 years. They're nearly 20% on average. Um, and so, you know, that's a huge amount of money that makes it almost insurmountable to be able to pay it off if you're carrying a balance. So just be aware that if you have lines of credit, debt, um, you know, anything that you're paying interest on that is set to a variable rate, that's going to continue to increase as interest rates rise this year. And so exploring options to refinance those at fixed rates um, is a really smart thing to do, um, you know, if you haven't looked into that already. Um, okay, next question. Recommendations for where to open a high yield savings account. So I got this question um, a couple times in the last couple of weeks and I actually saved the replay of it to YouTube. So rather than use up this morning's time to address it again, I'm gonna link up in my stories when I'm done here, the replay of that from last week. Um, quickly, the high points is I would say, so long as it's FDIC insured, it can be, it's a good option to consider. And then the next thing to consider is just the rate. I would say most high yield savings accounts now are paying somewhere between three and a half to 4%. So if your savings account is not paying that, that's a missed opportunity where you could be earning more interest. The other thing I would say is that in the grand scheme of things, you know, most of them are similar. As long as they have FDIC protection and are paying a decent interest rate, it's a good option to choose and don't lose a whole lot of sleep kind of trying to find, you know, what is the best option out there because the reality is, is that in the grand scheme of things, that's not gonna make or break the difference in kind of your long-term potential. Um, what really is gonna make or break the difference is deciding, all right, how much of this money should I sit on in cash and how much of it should I be investing? That's the more kind of important thing to spend your time and effort on. With a high yield savings account, pick one that's FDIC insured, know that it's paying kind of around market rates and you'll make a good choice in that respect. Anything, by the way, is better than a regular savings account that you know is paying less than 0.1% in interest. So that's kind of the way to think about it and consider it. And like I said, if you kind of want more specific details, I'll um, link up that replay in my stories when I'm done here. Um, okay, next question. Can you explain expense ratios for stocks? Thanks, I always appreciate you sharing your knowledge. So just to clarify the question, one, there's no such thing as an expense ratio for stocks. I think what you're referring to is expense ratios for investment funds like mutual funds or ETFs. Um, expense ratios are simply how much is this fund spending on costs? And those costs are things like management fees. Um, investment managers manage the pooled assets within a mutual fund or within an ETF and they charge a fee for that management. There's other expenses like operating costs, trading costs, um, accounting costs, 
uh, documentation costs, like you know, having to put out a prospectus, for example, having to have like shareholder votes and meetings and things like that. All of those costs of running the fund get added together and that's kind of the total expense amount. And then the expense ratio is just what is that total expense amount relative to the total assets in the fund. And so that usually comes out for most funds somewhere in the range of the, on the very low end, it could be as close to zero as you can get. Um, more likely it's probably around like a quarter of a percent. And then on more actively managed funds, some of them may be upwards of one and a half to 2% and even higher. And the thing that's important to know is that the expense ratio is kind of what you're getting hit with in fees and costs on an ongoing annual basis. And that immediately detracts or deducts from the return that that fund is gonna earn in any given year. So if you are looking for, for example, um, targeting a 7% annual return on your investment portfolio, but you're investing in funds that charge, call it a 2% annual, have a 2% annual expense ratio, that means that fund actually has to generate a 9% annual return because they're gonna keep 2% of it every year for their fees and their costs and their management fee. So that's kind of the way to think about it. In a prospectus, there's always going to be a fee table. Um, and when I'm done today in my stories, I will link up kind of a post I have that goes through and, and kind of explains the fees and where to find that table and what the table looks like and kind of what a good expense ratio is, what a not so good expense ratio is. The big picture thing to understand is that passive funds, which are things like index funds, and they're passive because the manager isn't necessarily doing a whole lot of work and research to figure out like which names am I gonna buy and sell and trade in. They're basically replicating the weights of an index that are determined by the S&P 500 for, as an example. And so really their job is just monitoring and trading in and out day to day to match those weights in their portfolio. And so those passive funds have much lower fees than more active funds where they may be engaged in more detailed research and things like that. And so that's usually the biggest difference. I would say on the passive end of the spectrum, depending on the asset class, so something that is like a large cap, you know, or total market index or S&P 500 index should have fees kind of below, I would say 0.2%. And many like Vanguard and Fidelity now for their customers offer even like zero fee index funds. Um, so that's kind of created more competition in the industry to bring those fees down. More active funds. So typically the less liquidity um, an asset class has. So like as you go from large cap to smaller cap, as you look at like various international options, um, as you look at some kind of more unique like commodity funds or um, more like hedge fund-like investment strategies, that's where you're gonna see higher and higher fees. And the thing to know, and you'll hear, sometimes I sound like a broken record when I say this, but the thing to know is that studies over a very long period of time show that the vast majority, like 75% plus of active asset managers don't beat the index over the long run. So. You're paying a higher fee, so you're losing out on more of your return every year in fees to someone who isn't gonna beat the index in the long run. So it's just further justification to look for low cost index funds 
um, because over the long run, they tend to outperform many of those higher fee funds. Um, but like I said, when I'm done here in my stories, I will link up the post in the table that kind of explains fees in more detail so you know where to look for it and you can kind of see the fees that go into it um, and into calculating the expense ratio. Um, okay, next question. I need ideas on how to generate income from home easy and fast. So those kind of things don't often go together. Um, and oftentimes when people kind of will approach you and say, hey, I've got a easy, fast way for you to generate money, in my mind, that always kind of brings up a red flag. It's usually someone trying to sell you some type of MLM opportunity, which is multi-level marketing. Um, oftentimes it may require you to put up a bunch of money up front in order to build your business and create your opportunity over time. So I would just caution you against opportunities that market themselves like that in general. Um, there are no such things as get-rich-quick um, opportunities, typically speaking. Um, even when you see people who've made, you know, become millionaires overnight, it often comes from, you know, they had a liquidity event like an IPO or something like that, but they spent years of work building the business to that point to get it there. Now, in terms of viable options for you to consider, I would always start with kind of what is your personal skill set? Like, do you have a college degree or any type of kind of educational training or certification? That is often gonna be the easiest way for you to generate income most quickly is by relying on what expertise and experience you already have. Um, you know, so look at opportunities around that first because that's kind of where you're gonna instantly be able to have the most value. It's not gonna require you to get any additional training or go back to school or anything like that. So that's kind of where I would always encourage people to start with. Um, and then in terms of like being able to work from home, a lot of really good options for stay at home moms are things like virtual assistance um, opportunities. Today, there's lots of firms that help manage and place um, virtual assistants with various like um, entrepreneurs and you know, like I use uh, a VA to help with some of the scheduling on podcast opportunities and with some of my calendar organization and things like that. So there are firms out there that are always looking for, and, and I, it tends to be a really good opportunity for like a stay at home mom. So if organization and you have, you know, basic technology skills, that's something that can be an opportunity. Um, but again, start with looking at like, you're going to have the most income generating opportunity off of like whatever your trained skill set is. So start with that first. Um, and then VA opportunities, I think are something that are really great for stay at home moms. And you can kind of search around online. And if you want to, you can DM me, I can refer you to, you know, depending on your background, if that's a fit for your background, um, I'm happy to refer you to kind of the service I use because I know they're always looking to hire people as well. So anyway, I hope that that helps and gives some insights and also just a word of caution, like in economic environments like this, where there is uncertainty, where there do start to be kind of, um, you know, layoffs and unemployment that has the potential to rise. I do find there can be more predatory practices among some of these like get rich quick and MLM opportunities that kind of prey on people's vulnerabilities. So just be aware, you know, when you hear somebody present you with an opportunity with, you know, you can be your own boss and make a million dollars overnight and they hold out all these examples who tend to be like the exception, not the rule. 
not saying that there aren't people who are aren't successful at that, but they do tend to be the exception, not the rule. So, you know, just be aware of that they tend to prey on people when they're most vulnerable financially. Um, and if somebody represents an opportunity that like this is an easy, quick way to make money, make that have a red flag go up in your mind and not be something like that gets you excited and like that you jump on it without doing kind of your due diligence. Um, okay. Last question, so we'll, we should have some time to take questions um, from live listeners as well. How would you allocate a 30% raise? So this is a really good question. And one of the things that I talk about at the outset um, when it comes to kind of like financial planning and setting up your budget and things like that is understanding what your personal financial goals are and setting those out and laying those out. And the biggest reason for that is that it kind of makes everything else line up. So if, say, you decide at the outset that your financial goals are you want to save for a down payment on a new house, you want to take a vacation with your family every summer, and you want to allocate funds to your children's um, uh, college fund, say those are your three objectives. Well, when you have a 30% raise, you don't have to decide like where that money goes. It's already been decided. You've already made that decision for yourself. You've already established that like, these are my three financial priorities. And so when you come into additional funds, you say, all right, well, here are my financial priorities. So I now have 30% more income than I did before. So that's gonna allow me to max out my down payment for a house goal this year. And then I'm gonna be able to you know, I can immediately set aside the funds for my vacation plan. I can immediately max out my kids' 529 plans and I can make significant progress on this other plan. And so that's what I really try to kind of convey and encourage to people because what tends to happen otherwise is that if you don't have kind of predetermined goals and priorities is you tend to have lifestyle creep, right? You say, oh, I just got a 30% pay increase, which congratulations, that's great. Um, but you tend to just allow it to be sucked into your lifestyle and you never see kind of um, the financial benefits of like, yes, you may see financial benefits in terms of like material goods and, you know, oh, maybe I'm going to go buy a nicer car with a bigger car payment and um, maybe I'm going to start buying luxury brands for clothing instead of, um, you know, lower cost ones, for example. Um, and maybe I'm going to take a nicer vacation and that's fine if that's in alignment with your goals and priorities. Um, but if it's not, you want to make sure that kind of you view things through that lens. And so that's what I would tell you is to rather than prescribe to some set formula dictated by somebody else, take a step back and ask yourself, like, where do I want to be financially in one year, five years, 10 years? What do my financial goals and priorities need to be in order to help me get there? Um, does it mean like, oh, well now I can max out my retirement savings every year, which I wasn't doing before. Um, maybe that's a goal that you allow that to happen with. And by the way, just because you've had a 30% increase in income doesn't mean you have to have a 30% increase in your spending. Um, in fact, by not doing that, it's gonna allow you to make much more rapid progress on your financial goals than you were before. Um, and so those are just kind of the things to think about is I would say, take a step back, ask yourself, what are my financial goals and priorities? What is my why? Like, 
Why did, you know, why is this a benefit to my family and how can it most benefit me? What's the best use for those funds? Um, that's kind of the way to think about it rather than kind of putting it on some set prescription or set formula. So I know that that doesn't like directly answer your question, but I hope it at least gives you a framework for how to think about it and then apply it to um, kind of your specific situation. Um, okay. Let me just go back and scroll through and make sure I didn't miss anything here. Somebody said index fee discussion was great. Thank you. I'm glad that that was helpful. It's something that's really basic. Um, and actually, if anybody is not um, reading our FFM book club pick with us this month, for those who are new, once a quarter, we pick a book, we read it together. It's announced at the beginning of the quarter and then we discuss it in the last month of the quarter. So we'll begin discussing it um, in early March. Uh, the book for Q1 is The Bogle Effect, which is about the history of John Bogle, who was the founder of Vanguard. And it really goes through exactly how Vanguard was able to do what it did and just how revolutionary it really was for the financial services industry and how collectively he's probably saved investors in aggregate over a trillion dollars and that that will continue to grow over time as passive index funds continue to become a larger and larger part of most people's portfolios. So if that's something you wanna better understand, it's written in kind of like plain English that anybody can understand. Um, the other cool thing is that the author interviewed like a ton of financial services kind of gurus, experts, CEOs, and he shares like their anecdotes and stories about their interactions with John Bogle and their thoughts on kind of like really what he brought to bear on the industry. And I would argue he's kind of like, I mean, he should be in the same kind of realm as like Warren Buffett, but he's just kind of like this unsung hero, I feel like, um, because since the way he set up his fund, instead of it resulting in amassing billions and billions of dollars of wealth for him, it resulted in lower and lower and lower fees for his investors. Um, so kind of an altruistic guy in a sense, in some ways. Um, and he, you know, was not poor by any stretch of the imagination, but he is not in the realm of like billionaire status that he could have been, you know, had he made different choices, but instead he opted to make it more affordable for investors to invest, which is kind of a unique story in finance. Um, so anyway, I think it's, if that's something you want to better understand, learn more about, that's what we're reading this quarter. And we'll be talking about it in more detail um, next month. Before I sign off today, just a heads up for everybody, one of the major, really kind of the only major economic um, point in the news this week is we will get the CPI numbers for, what month is it, for January. Um, I'm like, I don't know, even know what day it is today. So it's February right now, so we will get the numbers for January tomorrow. Um, for those who are not aware, CPI stands for Consumer Price Index. It is the earliest monthly data point we get um, on the measure of inflation each month. So it's something obviously people are paying a lot of attention to over the last, call it, you know, 12 to 18 months. Um, so we'll see what that print is tomorrow morning. So look for that. Um, but really, other than that and kind of a wrap up of Q4 earnings season, that's kind of the big economic data points. Obviously, we're also still kind of watching Congress's potential discussions on the debt ceiling, but there doesn't seem to be like a whole lot of activity around that yet. 
Um, as you may recall, the deadline that kind of the Treasury Secretary has had is that kind of that they need to have something done and some decision made, call it by like May, June timeframe. So as spring progresses, we'll probably see those negotiations progress as well. Um, other things to kind of have on your radar um, from an economics and financial perspective is later this month, the Supreme Court will be hearing the oral arguments on student loan forgiveness. So that is another area that is kind of, you know, many people that directly impacts many people's lives. Um, one other element of personal finance to be aware of is that the IRS had kind of told people to hold off on filing tax returns. If you were in a state that had issued um, any type of kind of like stimulus or refund checks over the course of 2022, because there was some debate as to how those would be treated from a federal tax perspective, they have now kind of said that they don't expect to charge federal taxes on any of those kind of state stimulus or state reimbursements and that you should now feel free to file your taxes for 2022. So those are kind of the major um, personal finance headlines that have been bantered about over the last week or so. Um, for those, again, who are new, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up now. I do post these replays as videos here on Instagram. I also post the audio as a replay on my podcast, Finance Explained. So if you prefer to listen on the go, you can catch those there. Um, and I will be back on Wednesday for live Q&A at 9 a.m. again. So I hope everybody catches up on some sleep over the next couple of days. Uh, and I will be back on Wednesday to take your questions live again. Thanks for listening to this Q&A replay. As a reminder, to have your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday and Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.